welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Well, good morning and welcome. Thank you, Abby and worship team for your leadership. Thanks for having us back. I take that as a good sign. And uh, I got a lot of ground to cover, so let's bow our heads and close our eyes and pray a short prayer, and then we'll plunge into God's Word. Father, we thank you for uh, this, your church, as it gathers in this space, this room this morning, here and all around the world. Your people praising and worshiping and learning together. Help us to enter in uh, to, to that enormous community, that numberless throng that will one day people heaven, a numberless throng. The Bible tells us we, we are honored to be counted among those who are a part of your church. Help us now, Lord, to focus on your word. Help us to set aside the cares of the day and the troubles of our heart. Uh, please hold those for us so that we can be attentive and open to receive what you have to speak to us today by your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this may seem a kind of audacious way to begin, but I'm going to do it uh, by saying this. Whether I know you or not, and for the most part I don't know you, I do know two things about you. <laughs> because to be human is, is to be described by this short sentence. You are remarkably resilient and extremely fragile. It, it, it amaz- the longer I live, the more amazed I become about just how exceptionally true not just uh, one or the other, but both of those things are about all of us. We are each one remarkably resilient and extremely fragile. And learning how to deal with that reality in the context of the gospel is our goal this morning, to understand better um, how to live with ourselves in a peaceful way, an understanding way, a redemptive, a redemptive way. Think about it. We, we have the capacity within the space of a few seconds to keep it together in the midst of tragedy, suffering, and loss, and then suddenly fall apart all over the smallest inconvenience or injustice or offense. Either one or both can happen in just a moment's time. Our inner life, yours and mine, is paradoxically resilient and fragile, seemingly contradictory things simultaneously present in the very complex creature we call a human being, you and me. So how do we account for this and what do we do with it from a biblical point of view? That's our task this morning. I'll do my best to answer from the Bible, but let me set this up before we read a number of scriptures, if you're at all self-aware, you'll be conscious of the fact that there's a lot going on inside of you. Uh, it's, I've described it this way at various times. It's often like a bad committee meeting up here about half the time. Conflicting voices, confusing impulses, powerful drives and feelings that rise up mostly unbidden, that just defies simple analysis and often leaves us feeling entirely powerless over ourselves. And if that doesn't describe you, if you're living in a state of perpetual peaceful inner bliss, then you either need to be today's speaker (laughs) or you need to be called out of the denial in which you're living because we are simultaneously 
resilient, and fragile human beings. What is often true of us is nowhere uh, better or more succinctly described than by the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, who said, I do not understand myself at all. I do what I don't want to do. I don't do what I want to do. Can, can everybody sign up for that one? To which I can only say if Paul the Apostle needed help sorting out his conflicted inner life, so do you and I. So we want to look now at the Proverbs. The Proverbs in that center section of the Old Testament, at the center of your Bible, uh, the book of Proverbs, that speak to the inner life, especially to what Scripture refers to as an anxious heart or a crushed spirit, that place of inner distress we experience when life gets hard or hurtful or both and many other things besides. So the Word of God now. An anxious heart weighs a man down, but a kind word cheers him up. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Each heart knows its own bitterness, and no one else can share its joy. Even in laughter the heart may ache, and joy may end in grief. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy, and many other things, rot the bones. A happy heart makes the face cheerful, but heartache crushes the spirit. A man's spirit sustains him in sickness, but a crushed spirit who can bear. Hence the title of today's talk. Now, there's an awful lot there, and I'm going to do my best to cover it in the time allotted. So let's begin at the beginning by talking about the primacy of the inner life, that kind of first-placeness the centrality of our inner life. We just read, a man's spirit sustains him in sickness, but a crushed spirit, who can bear? And to get at this first point, we have to ask, what exactly is the word spirit describing here? It's a very important word in the Bible. And what the commentators tell us is that it's a word that directly translates wind. If you're just to do a straight-across translation, you'd use the word wind. But Think about it a little bit. It refers more generally to force, to power, to movement, to energy. When used of the human spirit, it describes movement into life, passion for life, desire to negotiate the challenges of life as they come at us. So a crushed spirit refers to a lack of energy, a lack of desire for the challenge of, lo of life, a loss of that vital energy necessary to sustain us emotionally, a listlessness and lethargy we often describe with D words. Discouragement, despondency, depression, despair. So do you begin to see what the Proverbs are saying? How you manage your external life begins with your internal life. Very important to get that straight. Your inner life is primary. You can be in good health, but if your spirit is crushed, you'll lack the energy to move forward because even the strongest body cannot bear the weight of despair, which underscores something the Bible says over and over again. Our inner life is more important than our external circumstances. Our internal life is more primary than our external circumstances, yet... Our external circumstances are always crying out for attention, and we tend to bring our focus to bear on it and forget about the primacy of our inner life. That's one of our great challenges. So Scripture relentlessly attacks our obsession with the idea that happiness is determined by circumstances. 
Good health, sufficient wealth, lots of choices, being treated well by others, being free to pursue our goals. Over and over and over, Scripture teaches that true happiness comes with or without these things. With or without, for from someplace deeper and more internal, a transformed, a reborn, a born-again spirit that governs our attitude and perspective. This is the critical thing. You, you see what I'm talking about, um, this whole idea reflected in the prayers of Paul, who prays for the churches that were faced with terrible external circumstances, all kinds of chaos and confusion, persecution, suffering, and the like. You'd think his prayers would focus on protection, safety, rescue, and relief, but no, almost not a word about those things. Paul prays for suffering Christians like this, and he does it repetitively in the epistles that, that he wrote. Here's one example. I pray that out of his, God's glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you may grasp how wide, long, high, and deep is the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, that the reality of God's love for you will be the dominant and most influential reality in your sphere of awareness, not your circumstances, not your checkbook balance or lack thereof, not the condition of your car or on and on the list goes, but of the love of God for you. Now, that's, that's a very challenging thing that Paul models for us there because our prayers tend to reflect a much bigger concern for the nature of our circumstances than the status of our inner life. Paul blows right past circumstances because his thinking, his theology, his imagination is shaped by Scripture, which says if your life is a mess circumstantially but your spirit is sound, you'll respond to your life in strength. If your life is good circumstan circumstantially, but your spirit is crushed, and you haven't figured out how to way a way to deal with that, you'll respond to the world in weakness. So if you have the courage, ask yourself some sort of diagnostic questions, and you can tease this out and make them up as you like. Here's a couple of examples. Am I more concerned to deposit grace and truth in my spirit than I am money in my bank account? Am I more attentive to God's love and sovereignty over my life than I am to the most recent injustice I've suffered? That's putting the question to the test. Is your inner life really primary? If not, according to Paul and Proverbs, I'm just out of touch with reality. If I do not understand this, I am out of touch with the way the world God made works. Or to use the word Proverbs uses, I'm being foolish to focus on my circumstances and not my inner life. The development of my inner life. Wisdom understands the priority of the inner life. But it also comprehends the complexity of the inner life. And bear with me, because I need to tease this out for reasons that I think will be obvious. If caring for our inner life is as important as I've suggested, we need to ask, what causes a crushed spirit? Why do our emotions get so out of whack so easily and so often? Why do we struggle and lose passion or energy for life? And the biblical answer is, it's complicated. 
And I say that a little tongue-in-cheek, but really to make a point. My, my point today is to help you to see how wise the Bible is about you and how you've been made and how you're wired up, and then to root the challenge of being that sort of person in the gospel's solution for us. So we're thinking about the, the, the complexity of the inner life. Think about this. Of all the books, <laughs> there are multitudes, listed online at Amazon on the human psyche, the inner spirit, not one of them, and not even all of them combined, are as wise, comprehensive, nuanced, sophisticated as Scripture. I want to make that case. Most of what is written about the human spirit is one-dimensional, reductionistic, not savvy enough by half where it comes to you and me and that bad committee meeting that's going on in our heads. In just the few verses I read a moment ago, at least five factors that influence the human spirit are revealed. And the first is the physical or medical aspect, if you will. We're told that a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. So does anger and a variety of other things. This, this, ancient, this ancient text reveals an incredibly sophisticated understanding of the link between the body and our inner life. It's taken science centuries to catch up to the fact that emotional trauma can produce physical symptoms. Envy, anger, bitterness, and fear can and do mess with your body. And physiological problems can mess you up emotionally and psychologically and spiritually. Fatigue, a bad diet, insufficient exercise, chemical imbalances, to say nothing of specific diseases, can wreak Havoc with your inner equilibrium. And I'll pause here to say a lot of harm, a great deal of damage has been done by Christians who are insensitive to the fact or just unaware that brain chemistry imbalances and a whole host of other things can cause difficulty, depression, despondency, and other, other maladies for us. And here, here I'll turn to, a, to a, a relatively contemporary illustration. Most of you will have heard of Dave Druvecki, the former pitcher of the San Francisco Giants, who got cancer in his shoulders. And some of you watched um, in stunned silence when he threw his final pitch and almost his arm went with the ball. It was just a tragic, horrendous moment. Well, Dave is married to Jan. And uh, if you know Dave, being married to... Um, being married to him would be its, its, its own challenge. He's a bit of a handful. He and Jan are very strong Christ followers. They love Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And early in their marriage, were involved in a very, I, I'm, I'm trying to be as respectful as I can here, a very sort of one-dimensional, simple uh, kind of church environment who didn't really understand some of what I'm trying to explain here. Today, and she ended up writing a book called A Joy I'd Never Known, but the book is born of the fact that she suffered a serious, ongoing, long-term depression and just struggled to figure out how to solve it while living in a spiritual community that didn't, didn't have a very sophisticated understanding of what was going on with her. Anyway, all that to, to, to say, it took her a long time to decide to go talk to her pastor about her situation. When the opportunity came, she writes, I gathered up enough courage and greeted him, Pastor, please, I need you to pray for me. I could feel the tightness in my chest and thickness in my throat as I spoke. 
I'm just not doing well, Pastor. I mean, I think I'm depressed, and it keeps getting worse, even though I'm seeking the Lord. I don't want to have to go on medication. Well, that's good to hear, he said. But I'm not well. I can feel myself sinking back down again. I need help. I need the elders to pray for me, to pray against this depression. She writes, there I said it. I owned it. It was hard to humble myself, to admit my weakness, and ask for help. But I did it. And here's how her pastor responded. He looked at me and shook his head ever so slightly and said, Jan, if I called the elders together to pray for every woman who had an emotional problem, we would never get anything else done. You just need to take this to the Lord. And of course she needed to take it to the Lord. She'd been taking it to the Lord for a long, long time. But there were other things going on as well that needed to be spoken of and ultimately dealt with. And they were. That's the good news. So there's just the first aspect, the physical medical aspect. Then the emotional relational aspect. We're told an anxious heart weighs a man down, but a kind word cheers him up. That phrase, a kind word, sounds benign, but it hints at a very deep and powerful truth. We have this longing to be known and understood, to receive a word from outside. We know intuitively that we need a word from outside to be, to be real, to be recognized, to be validated as, as human beings. Without that word, we feel isolated and alone. That's part of who we are. It's part of what it means to be created by God and live in a universe in which he is the author and sustainer of. And I'll just say parenthetically, the problem with so much self-esteem thinking is that it's all on you to convince yourself that you're okay, and it doesn't work that way. You need a word from the outside, a word of love, acceptance, and support. Our inner life, our hearts are starved for supportive caring words, which is why it's so important for us to give them, because we all, every one of us, need them. There is no pill or exercise that can replace the verbal assurance of another person's voice, the embrace of another person's arms, the visual validation that comes from another person's eyes, respect from someone you respect. We need that more than we're sometimes willing to admit but we need it because we are emotional, relational beings. But that's not all. There's also the moral conscience aspect. And here's a verse we didn't read earlier, so um, look carefully with, with me at this. The wicked man flees, though no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Now you can read that fast and move on and go, yeah, whatever. Or you can pause for a moment and think about that. That is one of the wise, such an insightful verse. It's actually a quote from Leviticus 26 where God warns his people, if you disobey me, you will flee though no one pursues. What does that mean? Well, it describes the nature of the conscience, the power of a clear conscience, which gives us the boldness of a lion, and it reveals the power of a guilty conscience and how we often process our guilt. It's just a wise and clever description of how we manage guilt and the generalized guilt we all carry around in this world so that sometimes we feel guilty even when we haven't actually done anything wrong in, say, the last 30 or 45 minutes. (laughs) It describes the neurotic personality who hears footsteps when no one is actually there. 
But it also warns us that when we entertain sin in one area of our life, we're likely to experience guilt as a kind of nagging companion, always with us. And so how even our little failures, when connected by our conscience to some larger offense, can follow us wherever we go and just trouble and vex our spirits. In other words, this verse clarifies how important it is that we learn how to experience, experience forgiveness. One of the reasons Jesus gave us the ordinance of baptism, uh, sorry, well, nothing wrong with baptism, I, I, want, I meant to say communion, is that we hold, we hold these tangible elements of the wine and the bread, the body and the blood of Christ, to be reminded in, the, in, in our physical bodies, in this physical world, that we have been forgiven by the person whose opinion ultimately matters more than all the other opinions in the universe. So to experience a cleansed conscience and the, the deep forgiveness that's offered us in the gospel is to be set free and to possess, in the end, the boldness of a lion. So there's the moral conscience aspect. Then, sorry for the big words here, but the philosophical existential aspect, the verse here is, even in laughter the heart may ache and joy may end in grief. If you misunderstand or trivialize that verse, you'll miss something very deep. Philosophers call it existential angst or just the pain of existence something we carry with us all the time wherever we go but often can't describe, and it's basically this. We live with the awareness that all of life in this world, key phrase, this world, ends in grief and loss. Ultimately, it does. It's one of the fundamental reasons we struggle to be happy. We can't not know instinctively and intuitively that this is true. We carry it with us, and it, it sounds a grief note, at least in the background of every moment of our lives. To use the language of the Old Testament, it's important to understand we do not live in the promised land. We live in the wilderness. Do you, know, do you understand that? I think lots of people do not understand this. We inhabit the wilderness. Again, I'm just using Old Testament images here. We live in the wilderness. We live this side of heaven, not in the promised land. And if you haven't thought about this, you should, because at the root of many of our social political disputes is the assumption that heaven can be created here and now by us. And it cannot. Now, that's not to say that as Christ followers, we don't do everything in our power to create a world that is just and fair and, and good and a blessing to as many people as possible. As Christ followers, that's part of our mission. But we don't get confused about whether in the present moment we're in the wilderness or the promised land. We are in the wilderness, friends. Do you not know that? You must know that to be wise. Heaven is a gift we are given, not a place we create. And confusion about this leads to heart sickness. I don't know if you were here the last time I spoke, but I used this idea the last time I was here, so forgive the repeat. But when friends and family gather at a table for a meal, the reality is one person at that table will eventually attend every other person's funeral. Isn't that a cheery thought? But my point is, you, whether you, you've even thought about it that succinctly and clearly, your, your inner life is aware of that at all times. And it is that grief note that's sounding in the background of your, of your life. 
You may not like to hear it. I don't like to hear it, but it's a fact. And you carry this awareness into every moment of life. There is a ground note of sadness in this world that we cannot deny or extinguish. And so, and so, unless you have some definitive way of dealing with the reality of death and connecting your present life to to life beyond this world, your sadness will sooner or later crush your spirit. Which brings us to the faith spiritual aspect or dimension. Committed as our culture is to a materialist view of the world, we are hardwired for transcendence. We just keep trying to act as if this is not true and it is so true that we can't deny it. It's foolishness to deny it. The notions of a larger reality than the one we inhabit of eternity and of God are so deeply fixed in the human nature that they must be suppressed. They have to be suppressed, willfully ignored by those who choose to reject them. So look at this verse. A happy heart makes the face cheerful, but heartache crushes the spirit. And hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. In Proverbs, in Proverbs, the heart is not, as is usually the case in English, a synonym for our emotions. The heart is where we hold what is most important to us. And you have to think about what is most important to you. The reality that makes life worth living for you. The thing without which your spirit will be crushed if it's not able to have it in the way that you want it. Or just to put it in plain words, if you've decided in your heart that you're nobody until somebody loves you and that somebody stops loving you, you won't just be sad, you'll be devastated. If you've decided in your heart that your security in this world is your net worth and your net worth is cut in half by some financial fiasco, you won't just be bummed out, your spirit will be crushed. You'll have the wind knocked right out of you. There it is, the wind. Now, two things before we move on. Do you see, do you see how comprehensive and sophisticated the biblical view of human nature is? Psalm 139 tells us we are fearfully and wonderfully made in the Imago Dei, the image of God, which is why there is no perspective on us that is more complete and insightful in describing our nature, our struggles, and our needs than the one offered in Scripture. The best resources available. You expect pastors to say, oh, the Bible, it's a really good book. No, it is actually the authoritative and final and most fully nuanced revelation on who you are and why you are the way you are and what you need to do about all that. And then this, do you see how wrong it would be? I think I've made the point, but let me just hammer it home. How destructive it can be to treat a crushed spirit with a one-dimensional understanding of human nature. How important it is for us to be wise about this. To diagnose a moral problem as emotional weakness, to tell someone with a glandular problem that they need to confess their sins and pray more, To tell someone with a guilty conscience that they need a pill to deny the sadness that comes to all who live this side of eternity is foolish and cruel. Look at at this proverb. Singing cheerful songs to a person whose heart is heavy is as bad as stealing someone's jacket in cold weather or in June in Carmel by the sea. (laughs) 
or rubbing salt in a wound. You cannot be wise, friends. You cannot be wise without a grasp of the Bible's expansive understanding of how we're all wired up. So there's the primacy and complexity of the inner life. One more big idea before we go to the gospel remedy for our struggles, the isolation and solitude of the inner life. And this is, this is a tough topic or a tough piece of the story here, but it has to be understood. So what is it about? Well, Proverbs says, each heart knows its own bitterness and no one else can share its joy. And this refers to the fact that there is much that is hidden in our life. There's much that is hidden in our life. No one can know all that we're thinking or feeling or carrying around with us. No other human being can know us comprehensively. We don't even know ourselves comprehensively. But it's even deeper than that. This means that our greatest need to be known, to be loved, to be embraced by another, as we just sang moments ago, will never be fully met by another human being, which is the reason why we have so many difficulties with each other. We keep expecting from each other things the other cannot give. Only one being in all the universe can give us what we really need. If you rebel at that, think of it this way. We do not know our own selves half the time. We don't relate to our own selves all that well. So how do we expect others to do so? This is is saying, even if we enjoy loving relationships with family and friends, in a very deep way, we go through life alone. There is a solitariness to life in this world whether you're single or married, you've got 10 grandkids like I do or none, whatever your category, there is a solitariness to to life that you probably haven't thought about consciously all that much, but it goes with you everywhere you go. We know it because we can't not know it. And ironically, incredibly, in a world of seven plus billion people, existence turns out to be this mostly solitary affair. There's no one who completely gets you, including you. All a man's ways seem innocent to him, but motives are weighed by the Lord. The Lord alone knows what's going on in us. We don't really know ourselves, and when you start to wrap your mind around this, it's disturbing because here's what it means. Without God, we are ultimately, totally, finally alone in this world. This this is why, by the way, this is why calling people to God and the gospel is not just a nice idea. It's as important as anything we can do. Most important decision anyone will ever make is, will I die alone without God? Or will I die in the embrace of the one who died for me? Because to be alone in the world is bad enough. To be alone in eternity is, dare I say it, hell. And this is why it's not enough to be moral or good. We must become intimate with God, the one who made us. We must come to really truly know him. It's not enough to know about God in some general abstract way. We must come to truly deeply know him as the one who will walk with you through life and in the valley of the shadow of death, your one true companion now and forever. Why would you run away from him? Now, that's a lot of analysis. What do we do with this? We are fragile, complex creatures needing companionship, yet alone in the world, needing a word from the outside to even be sure of our existence, yet ill-equipped to understand, much less fix what's wrong with us. 
We are plagued with a stubbornness that resists God, but also a conscience that magnifies guilt in a way that leads us to flee even when no one's chasing us. So what do we do? How do we deal with these factors that converge in such a way that our spirits are often crushed? How do we get to the healing of our inner life? And by now, I hope it's clear, you may need to address one or more of the areas that I've outlined. Don't be foolish and ignore the physical, the emotional, the moral, the existential and spiritual dimensions of your life. But our greatest need, according to Proverbs, is to access the tree of life. And where do I get that? Well, look at this. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Now, is that just a poetic expression, or is it more? Look again, the tongue that brings healing is a tree of life. There it is again, but a deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. The tree of life, the tree of life. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't. The tree of life appears at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis, and once again at the end of the Bible in Revelation. And the only other reference, specific reference to it, is found here in the book of Proverbs, right in the middle of the Bible. The tree of life stood at the heart of the Garden of Eden. Commentators tell us it represents not only the gift of life, physical existence, but also eternal life, everlasting existence, and fullness of life, or flourishing existence, purposeful existence. Jesus said, I have come that you might have fullness of life. So, Eden is where fullness of life began, the place where our hunger for beauty, truth, and love was fully met. But we abandoned the tree in the garden, and Genesis 3 ends with the flaming sword standing between us and the tree of life. Read it, it's right there. And so this beautiful symbol of life and fulfillment becomes this tragic symbol of loss and alienation, and so we live with what some have called a nagging nostalgia. This just vague, general, ongoing awareness, a sense that we're exiles looking for a home that we've been separated from, that we've been lost from, and have invented a billion ways to try to get back there, and yet very often we don't know where there is. We have, we have poets and authors and songwriters have, have, been, have been touching on this forever, We have within us a memory of a perfect place we've never actually been, but to which we know we belong. Poets and novelists tell us we can recall a kiss we haven't experienced, a song we haven't heard, an embrace we haven't felt. C.S. Lewis, as he often did, wrote in Mere Christianity the most succinct and brilliant explanation of this. He says, most people, if they really learn how to look into their own hearts... And I'll pause and just say, most don't, so think on that. Most people, if they really learn how to think, how to look into their own hearts, know that they want, and want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. Our longing for love, discovery, and learning something new for our true home is in fact a remembering, a nostalgic yearning to be reunited with something in the universe from which we feel cut off. This is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. 
And with time and age, hopefully, with time and age, we come to understand that everything we pursue in this world that promises fullness of life makes an empty promise. Now, you can have that experience over and over, believing that the next thing, the next spouse, the next job, the next house, the next city, the next adventure will provide what the last one didn't, but wisdom understands that real and lasting fulfillment can only be found somewhere else. Scripture says it can only be found in the tree of life. It's all about the tree of life. So you know, don't you, the New Testament tells us that Jesus died on a tree. That very precise language. Acts 5, Acts 10, Galatians 3, 1 Peter 2, all reference the tree on which Jesus died. He died on a cross, of course he did, So this isn't just a literary device. It really is about the tree. The biblical authors, inspired by the Spirit, were making this most essential point. For in the garden, God came to Adam and Eve and said, Obey me about the tree, and you will live. But they refused. And we refuse God a thousand times every day in just like fashion. And death and alienation and separation fill the vacuum created by our disobedience. But in another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, God came to Jesus and said, Obey me about the tree, and you will die. You will be crushed. Physically, spiritually, cosmically crushed. You will die. You will die, but they will live. And he obeyed. He said yes. The root of every gospel song we see is this truth. The tree on which our Lord died is the bridge back to all we forfeited and lost and from which we feel separated. Jesus quotes Psalm 22 while hanging on the tree. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My heart is turned to wax and melted within me. Jesus was crushed in spirit. The only man who enjoyed perfect intimacy with the Father endured the Father's abandonment that we might experience the Father's embrace. That's the gospel, friends, and that's the solution to our deepest problems. Jesus endured the tree of death that we might have access to the tree of life. This is the gospel remedy to all that's wrong with us. There's an old poem that captures the whole of the gospel in just a small fragment of a single stanza, Jesus speaking, says, All ye who pass by, behold and see, man stole the fruit, but I climbed the tree. Tree of life to all, but not to me. And there it is. The tree of death for him became the tree of life for us, for all who believe. And the question is, do you believe it? Really deeply, wholeheartedly believe it? In, in a room like this on a Sunday morning, all of you have some factual awareness of this truth, but is it more real to you than your, the, check, the balance in your checkbook or how much gas is or isn't in your car or name the physical reality that dominates your mind? The degree to which you see what he did for you, to the degree that you see that it's a gift to be gratefully received, to the degree that it captivates your heart and reorients your perspective and renews your mind and brings you into communion with God, to that degree you'll experience what one author called joy beyond the walls of this world. 
irrespective of what your external circumstances may be. Joy bigger than your joyless circumstances. See, your biggest problem is not your negative circumstances. It's your lack of joy in the gospel. Joy bigger than your crushed spirit and your anxious heart. And this is not wordplay or, or theoretical, friends. This is, this is as practical as it gets. When you bring your conflicted life, your perishing body, and your emotional brokenness, your guilty conscience, and your existential terror, your spiritual confusion, and your deep loneliness to the one who sees you all the way to the bottom yet loves you to the skies, enough to endure the tree of death that you might have access to the tree of life, when you use that on your inner life, it will heal you. I would say that's the great challenge of being a sincere Christ follower is, is embracing that truth for the reality that it is. Even though you can't hold it so much in your hands, it's more real than, any, than the chair you sit on. When it's more real to you than the chair you sit on, it will heal your soul. It's the only thing that can. So wisdom is learning to say over and over to your crushed spirit, he climbed the tree of death that I might have access to the tree of life. Wisdom is learning to say over and over to your anxious heart, well may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. Because that's what the tree of life accomplished. Bow your heads and close your eyes and let's just wrap a bow around this. Jesus endured the tree of death that we might have access to the tree of life. So friend, believe it. Receive it. Embrace it as the truest and best thing you know and the peace of Christ will rule in your heart and the joy of the Lord will be your strength. It will. So Father, please help us to see and be seized by these truths which alone are able to transform us from the inside out. Jesus, thank you for your work on the tree of death that reestablishes our access to the tree of life. And Holy Spirit, help us to dwell on these things until they heal all that is broken inside of us. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.